Welcome to the DUI Law Podcast, produced by the Oberman and Rice Law Firm. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. You will not become a client until a written contract is agreed to between the host and listener. This podcast provides only general legal information. Every legal situation is different due to changing laws and the facts of the case. If you have a question, you may call us at 865-249-7200. Now for today's program. You see them on TV. You may even see people attempting them on the side of the road. Comedians call them stupid people tricks, but field sobriety tests have existed as long as the enforcement of DUI laws. This is your host, Steve Oberman, and in this episode, I will be discussing a very general summary of the history, the standardization, and the validation of standardized field sobriety tests. In later episodes, I will provide a summary of each of the standardized field sobriety tests as well as some of the non-standardized tests. For years, field sobriety tests varied among officers within the same law enforcement agency, as well as from one agency to another. Field sobriety tests were limited only by the officers' collective imaginations. Today, most law enforcement agencies have adopted the field sobriety tests which have been standardized and are therefore theoretically more objective than others. Non-standardized field sobriety tests, however, are not only mentioned, but are detailed in the officer's DUI detection training manuals. Allow me to first address the history and background of these tests. In the 1970s, the United States National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which you will sometimes hear me refer to by its initials as NHTSA, funded research to evaluate which roadside field sobriety tests were the most accurate. The research was conducted by the Southern California Research Institute. In the original study, six different tests were considered. These included the one-leg stand, finger-to-nose, finger count, walk-and-turn, tracing, which was a paper and pencil exercise, and both the vertical and horizontal gaze nystagmus tests. The researchers finally concluded that a three-test battery, the horizontal gaze nystagmus, the walk-and-turn, and the one-leg stand offered a reliable field sobriety testing procedure to distinguish which persons had a blood level alcohol content above 0.10%. Subsequent studies, which I will later discuss, led NHTSA to conclude that these tests were sufficiently reliable to distinguish blood level alcohol contents above 0.08%. It is important to note that these tests were not originally designed to determine if someone's ability to drive was reduced below normal. The next step was to standardize these tests. Additional research was therefore conducted to complete the development and validation of the field sobriety test battery and to assess the feasibility of the tests in the field. An additional study was performed in the field to validate the three tests outside a laboratory setting and to systemize the administrative and scoring procedures. Defense lawyers, including myself, have suggested that the conclusions of these studies may be flawed in some respects. In particular, the conclusions regarding accuracy are heavily weighted by the large number of subjects with very high blood alcohol levels. A statistical analysis of the original data indicates the accuracy of the standardized field sobriety test depends on the blood level alcohol content and is much lower than that indicated in the original studies. However, 
the standardized field sobriety tests may be more useful in identifying subjects with a blood alcohol level substantially greater than 0.08%. Allow me to next address the standardization of these tests. We call these standardized field sobriety tests, but what is really standardized? Well, generally, three things. First, the administration of these tests. This means that the tests must be always administered in the same manner. This includes standardization of the location where the tests are given. Second, the officer administering these tests should always look for a specific set of clues unique to each test. And third, the officer must score each test using the standardized scoring system. So to review, the test must be given the same way each time, only certain clues count, and the test must be scored according to the guidelines. Now I would be derelict in my duties if I neglected to discuss the three additional studies on the standardized field sobriety test funded by NHTSA in the late 1990s. According to NHTSA, the results of these studies provide clear evidence of the validity of these tests. NHTSA further stated that the studies support arrest decisions at above or below 0.08% and that the results strongly suggest that the sobriety test battery accurately determines blood alcohol concentrations at 0.04% and above. However, the validity of these tests has been criticized and the legitimate scientific value has been questioned. Finally, allow me to address the validation of these tests. Above all, persons studying the validation of the standardized field sobriety test should note this major point from the manual. Allow me to paraphrase. It is necessary to emphasize the validation applies only when the tests are administered in the prescribed standardized manner, only when the standardized clues are used to assess the suspect's performance, and only when the standardized criteria that is the scoring system is employed to interpret that performance. If any one of the standardized field sobriety test elements is changed, the validity is compromised. So, now you have learned more about the history, standardization, and validation of the DUI standardized field sobriety test. This is your host, Steve Oberman, inviting you to join us next time to learn more about the issues relating to the crime of driving under the influence of an intoxicant. We hope you enjoyed listening to the DUI Law Podcast produced by the Oberman and Rice Law Firm. You may read about related legal matters on our websites at tndui.com and duinoxville.com or visit our blog at tnduicenter.com. You may also speak to one of our lawyers by calling 865-249-7200. Until next time, remember to drive safely.